invite you to turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. We're continuing our study of the prophet Isaiah at this uh, season. And we're going to read a larger chunk. Uh, and so it's in your bulletin or in a Bible if you're following along. We're going to read starting at verse 8 of chapter 9 through to the end of chapter 10. So uh, before you panic, I will be uh, uh, in the sermon afterwards. I won't try to be exhaustive as we cover this passage, but I invite you to listen. uh, And as we read through it, as we talk about it in the teaching, uh, you'll you'll see that it's all of a piece together. So I invite you to listen to the word of God, which was written by Isaiah, but is inspired by God through his Holy Spirit. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. For the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies, the Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elders and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still." Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. 
but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols who, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he, the Lord, for he, the king of Assyria says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of a fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He, Assyria, has come to Aath. He has passed through Migran. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Rama trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Laisha. O poor Anatoth. Madmana is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. This very day, he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. 
Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for understanding of it. Our Lord and our God, we thank and praise you for this passage. Uh, It's a challenging uh, word in many, many ways. And we pray now, though, that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand how you reveal yourself in this passage and how you reveal to us who we are or can be and who we ought to be. And we pray, Father, that uh, you'd use this passage to comfort the afflicted and to afflict uh, the comfortable. And we pray that uh, you would ultimately turn all of us to Jesus and the hope that we have in him and in him alone through our study of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the big deal about Christmas? What's it all about? Knowing most of you pretty well, I'm sure you'd all give very good answers to that question. Christmas is a celebration of the incarnation, the eternal Son of God assuming humanity and born among us as Jesus of Nazareth to be our Savior and our Lord. As we approach Christmas, we often read the great prophecies God gave ahead of time of this pivotal event. Many of them are from Isaiah. So at the start of Isaiah chapter 9, we read last time we were in Isaiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. At the start of chapter 11 that we'll look at next week, Lord willing, we read, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, who according to his humanity was a son of David, who was a son of Jesse. Those are passages that you put on your Christmas cards to family and friends. But in between those familiar passages is this really sizable chunk of Isaiah. And for most of us, this doesn't sound very Christmassy, does it? I don't know that we heard any passages that we would be quick to put on those annual Christmas cards this morning. But in Isaiah's mind, it's all related. This is the darkness that must be dispelled by light. The coming of Jesus is all of a piece with the struggles between Israel and Assyria and Judah and the struggles of nations and individuals down through history with one another. Because as we heard in our call to worship this morning, the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Christmas is about God humbling the haughty and giving relief to the downtrodden and the humiliated. Christmas is about God debunking our human arrogance through the unlikeliest of means, the voluntary humiliation of Jesus. Now, what makes human pride so hard to nail down is that it's like a chameleon. It can take many different colors and it can blend into its surroundings so that it doesn't really seem that bad. That's why this section of Isaiah is so vital. Uh, In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion is the Christ figure, and in one of the books, the horse and his boy, towards the uh, 
end of the story, Aslan explains to Shasta, one of the two main characters, how Aslan has been steering him through the whole story, even though Shasta didn't realize it at the time. And he explains what he's been doing in Shasta's life and his story. And then Shasta asks a question about Erebus, the other main character. And Aslan responds, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. And then a bit later, Aslan himself talks to that other character, Erebus, and explains what he'd been doing in her life and in her story through the novel. But Erebus then asks about some other third character, to which Aslan responds to her as he heads to, to Shasta, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one has told any story but their own. Now, the author, C.S. Lewis, is being quite clever there. Like Narnia's Aslan, God is at work in each of our lives in unique ways that are often hidden to us and impregnable to those around us as much as they want to encourage us. And it's often not really our business what God's up to in the lives of those around us. We just don't know. We often, like Erebus and Shasta, are in the dark about what God's doing in our own life. Our primary business is uh, our own story and listening to what God has for us. But what else did Lewis do there? Aslan won't tell Shasta and Erebus about one another's stories, but who does hear both stories? If you're the reader, you hear both stories. Lewis is giving unique access, as it were, to illustrate how God works in our lives and the lives of those around us. Here, God does the same thing through Isaiah. God reveals to Isaiah what he's doing in the real-life stories of Israel, Assyria, and Judah. We are granted special access to each of their stories so that God might give us a glimpse of the diverse sorts of things that he could be doing in our own lives as well. We may see glimpses of ourselves in either Assyria, Israel, or Judah, but more importantly and more uncomfortably, God tells us uh, each of their stories so that we can see them in us. So we can see our own pride and choose humble repentance instead of deadly arrogance. So we'll consider those three stories this morning, Israel, Assyria, and Judah. In Israel, we see a story of irrational arrogance. In Assyria, we see a story of plausible arrogance. And in Judah, we see a story of chastened arrogance. So first, Israel and their irrational arrogance. Isaiah starts with Israel. If you're following along in your bulletin, uh, I was able to arrange it so the portion related to Israel is on pages 4 and 5, verses nine, uh, chap- verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 10, verse 4. There are four stanzas of this ominous poem. And in uh, each stanza ends with that chilling verdict For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still, anticipating the ultimate destruction of the nation of Israel to come. Normally, Isaiah focuses on his homeland. He's from Judah. 
He probably lives in Jerusalem. But here Isaiah shifts his attention to their northern neighbor, Israel. And in verse 9, God identifies Israel's root problem as pride and arrogance. Pride and arrogance that's manifested in how they are reacting to their recent setbacks. In verse 10, bricks have fallen and sycamores have been cut down. Israel's buildings and their forests are being destroyed by invaders, whether it's the adversary of Rezin, which is an allusion to the empire of Assyria, as well as Syria from the east and the Philistines from the west. Syria had been Israel's ally until Assyria defeated their king Rezin and installed a new pro-Assyria leadership in Syria so that they turned on Israel, their old ally. Israel's ally became her enemy. Israel's response to these setbacks is surprisingly upbeat. Dressed stones are fancier than bricks. Cedars imported for Lebanon are costlier and more impressive than local sycamore trees. Despite their setbacks, they are still convinced that better days lie ahead for them. Sometimes an upbeat outlook can be helpful, but in this case, Israel is willfully oblivious that their setbacks are God's discipline. In uh, chapter 9, verse 13 there, it says, The people did not turn to him who struck them. In our lives, God sometimes introduces hardship to bring us up short so that we would stop and take a look at ourselves and to spur us to turn to him. When he does that, he's not being vindictive. He's being patient and loving. It's like a good parent who's willing to raise their voice or grab their child by the collar so that that child doesn't wander into oncoming traffic. But in pride and in arrogance, Israel will not heed the discipline. Instead, they persist in relying on themselves, their own resources, their own intellect, their own resilience. But it's all just self-trust, misplaced self-confidence. As the Bible reminds us endlessly, especially Isaiah, we are nothing apart from God. He should be our hope, our trust, and our confidence. All other hopes, trusts, and confidence will fail us and betray us. Since Israel's pride and arrogance don't budge, the discipline of God's anger persists, and that's why that refrain persists, even to the point eventually of the entire nation being destroyed. And these four stanzas describe the collateral damage of hubris. Inept leadership, civil strife, self-dealing bureaucracy, a relentless descent from spiritual and moral decay into social disintegration and national collapse. You might know some irrational Israels, irrationally confident Uh, There's plenty of these characters in literature. Uh, The character who's constantly hatching ill-conceived scheme after ill-conceived scheme, always convinced that a change of luck is just around the corner. I am convinced uh, that there's probably a dozen versions of this character in the novels of Charles 
Dickens. Um, it's so infuriating to read that I, that's actually one of the things that makes it hard for me to read and enjoy Dickens, is characters like this. To the point that earlier in my life I wondered, can there really be actual people like this? I mean, this is so comical and over the top. And then I met more people and I realized, I realized that there are, in fact, actually people like this who are going on from bad idea to bad idea. There's an irrational arrogance that uh, uh, swagger that Israel has really no right uh, to have. Now, there can be lots of reasons for that. I, uh, as I thought about this passage, I was uh, reminded of a, a time when I manifested some irrational arrogance myself. Sometimes irrational arrogance can be a false front for insecurity. Some of you might remember that back at the start of 2019, uh, 20 years ago, um, I was able to go to a conference uh, and present a paper from my uh, research that I'd done as a seminary student. And uh, it was funny because I went back into this very academic context after many years of being primarily a pastor and um, in terms of being academic, very much an amateur uh, scholar. And uh, in this uh, atmosphere, mixing with uh, seminary PhD students, I uh, caught myself taking this uh, this weird tone of trying to sound like um, such a big shot, theological big shot. And I reflected on it afterwards, I was embarrassed by it, but it's probably because in that context, uh, I was expressing irrational arrogance really as a false front for insecurity. I was re-entering an academic world that I hadn't been an active participant of for a number of years. Now, what was the, what's the alternate path that Israel could have and should have chosen? What's the path that we should seek as individuals and as a church? Well, in chapter 9, verse 13, God gives it. Turn and inquire. Or we could say, repent and pray. Instead of ignoring God's discipline and the consequences of our actions that reveal to us ways in which we are being sinful or selfish, we should heed God's sometimes painful love, confess sin where we see it in our thoughts, words, and deeds, and then ask for forgiveness and grace to change. And prayer is an invaluable part of that. At its simplest, prayer is an admission that we are utterly dependent upon God. If you're like me, my strategy usually is to do all of the things that I can control to address a problem that's before me. And then the last step is when all of my own strategies fail to then pray, instead of doing what we ought to do as believers, which is to pray first and then think, is there something that I should do next? However hard we work at anything, we are depending upon God for the result, always. Instead of proud boasting that our hope for the future isn't in either our own past accomplishments or our ability to persevere into the future, it's in the Lord alone. As Psalm 127 begins, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. We are created to work and to strive and to serve God and to serve one another, but it's the Lord that determines the reward for our labor. Now, in contrast with Israel's irrational arrogance, we could say that Assyria is a case of plausible arrogance. If you're following the bulletin, you can flip over and you see pages six and seven, and uh, Isaiah has very conveniently made this easy for us. The portions that are in verse, poetic style, 
are the verses that uh, address specifically Assyria. And then we'll get in a minute to Judah, and the portion that's in sort of block prose paragraph style is related specifically to Judah. So as we look at Assyria, uh, while Israel had sort of an irrational confidence, contrary to the evidence, uh, Assyria has good reasons to be arrogant and self-satisfied. Uh, verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 8, an Assyrian commander exercises more authority than the local so-called kings of the city-states that Assyria is gobbling up one after another like a fox that's in a hen house where all of the, uh, the birds have gone away and the farmer is absent. The summary of the Assyrian heart is in verse 13. By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. Assyria is an example of the intoxicating influence of success. As victory follows victory, Assyria has begun to believe that she really is invincible. She's begun to believe her own propaganda. Assyria's past victories render her incapable of imagining the possibility of defeat. Assyria's arrogance is more plausible, but in its own way, it is still irrational. Through Isaiah, God explains what he's intending to accomplish with Assyria and how God's ultimate purposes are at odds with Assyria's ultimate purposes. However plausible Assyria's arrogance may seem, she eventually endures God's divine upending. Assyria thought she was a Paul Bunyan, a superhuman lumberjack leveling his enemies like a clear-cut forest. But God eventually confronts Assyria with the reality of his own divine purposes, which aren't on the same page with Assyria. Assyria is not the superhuman lumberjack. Assyria is just the axe in God's own supernatural hands. Like an axe, Assyria is nothing more than God's tool with no power in itself apart from that given by God. An axe cannot move itself and neither could Assyria do anything apart from the permission and the purpose of God. So God then gives two uh, separate visions of the eventual humiliation of Assyria's arrogance. Uh, Chapter 10, verses 15 to 19, describe how God did actually stop Assyria later in the lifetime of Isaiah at the gates of Jerusalem, burning through the Assyrian military camp with a wildfire-like plague, an epidemic that strikes them down. And as God concludes in the very last verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, Assyria's troops surrounded his people like a forest, but God then turned the axe of judgment back against them. Assyria ended up just as much a deforested waste as Israel or Judah that they had previously plundered. So what do we learn from Assyria's plausible but still irrational arrogance? Well, uh, it depends on whether there's a bit of Assyria in you or if Assyria is tormenting you. Me? Assyria? Well, think about it first. For some of us, how successful have you been in your life? Now, you're probably not the emperor of a globe-spanning empire. If you are, you're doing a really good job of hiding your double life, and I would like to remind you of our year-end financial need. But even if you aren't an Assyrian emperor-level master of the universe, ask yourself, did you grow up in a good family? 
do you, did you get the chance to go to good schools? Did you get a good job? Do you have a good home? Maybe your list of lifetime successes is different, but if the Lord has littered the pathway of our life with generous gifts, the danger that we all face is to assume that we can chalk that all up to our wit and our wisdom and our own hard work. But where does all of that come from? As Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Successful people assume that our successes are mostly our own responsibility. We assume that our opinions are always right, even about things we don't really know much about. And when you assume you're always right, you can be an incredibly off-putting person to others. If you always have the answer, right, just do what I did, and you probably wouldn't have any of the problems in your life, you can be incredibly discouraging to people who are struggling, who may be operating with obstacles that wouldn't even occur to those who have been successful and haven't had those obstacles as part of their own lives. Let's try not to become Assyria looking down on others around us. That attitude is the very opposite of what God calls us to. It's the very opposite of what God himself does. God, the only true superpower of the universe. God doesn't treat us like plunder with which to enrich himself. The very opposite. He humiliates himself to live among the humiliated and to then serve them and lift them up. That's the good news if you feel tormented by an Assyria in your own life. If there are people who you feel helpless before, who are able to do you harm, and maybe do it unwittingly, or deal you setbacks, however invincible or immovable they may seem, there is no human tyrant, however big or small, that is truly invincible or immortal. Whether that tyrant rules as small, even whether that tyrant rules as small a kingdom as a town, a small business, an academic department, or a family. Because God's ultimate goal is to chasten arrogance, to end it. That's what we see in this final story of Judah. God's anger at arrogance will end, as it says in chapter 10, verse 25. In a little, very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed at their destruction. Judas' arrogance is chastened. We could say that their original strategy was actually borrowed arrogance. Under Ahaz, Judah knew they were vulnerable. They didn't have the same irrational confidence as Israel. They knew they were weaker than their enemies, but instead of relying on their God, they looked to Assyria, who just intended to gobble them up at the earliest opportunity. As it says in chapter 10, verse 20, they will no more lean on him who struck them. Judah will no more lean on Assyria. How do you know if you're relying on a person instead of God? Well, if that relationship falters, are you disappointed? Or do you feel like you're absolutely undone? If that person is rightfully displeased with you, are you disappointed with yourself? and resolve to improve? Or are you plunged into the depths of depression and self-loathing? That can happen in even otherwise good, healthy relationships. If we make that relationship our ultimate reference point so that that person displaces God's priority in our lives, 
whether it be a spouse, a romantic partner, a, a parent or a child, a, a boss or an employee, arrogance exacts a price. Here, the price that it exacts is that only a remnant will return. This is a reference back to Isaiah's uh, eldest child, the name that he is given prophetically. But there's still a hope that persists. Only a remnant will return, but surely a remnant will return. Judgment will come. It will be destructive. Human arrogance cannot be leveled without leaving rubble and ruin. The remnant must endure the judgment. They cannot bypass it. When God is leveling our own arrogance, you can't just bypass the consequences of it. But there will be divine deliverance on the other side. Assyria's fate will be that of Israel's earlier oppressors, Egypt and Midian. In both cases, God accomplished supernatural deliverance of such miraculous power that no human being could falsely claim responsibility for it. On the other side, Isaiah foresees God causing the remnant to then flourish. They have to go through the hardship, but there will be flourishing at the end of it. Their burden will be removed like a yoke is lifted from the back of oxen. The final phrase of verse uh, 27 there perplexes Hebrew scholars. And it could be that Isaiah foresees that if the remnant are imagined to be like those oxen, God won't just lift the the yoke from them, but so cause the remnant oxen to prosper that the new muscle and fat resulting from their bulging necks will burst the very yoke. The message of the gospel is that destruction is decreed. Judgment overflowing with righteousness. God truly does make a full end in the midst of all the earth but in a way that human arrogance and intellect could never have imagined were it not revealed to us, through God humbling himself by stooping from heaven to become human. Just as God manipulated Assyria's arrogance for his purposes of chastising his children, so again God manipulated the arrogance of an imperial Roman governor and jealous Jewish leaders so that God's remnant of one, Jesus of Nazareth would himself be destroyed so that God's anger might find its end in him, be extinguished when the truly humble one, Jesus, stood in the place of arrogant people like you and like me. And now, like Isaiah's remnant oxen, the church through the centuries had been swelling to burst every limit that human arrogance has tried to impose upon her until the day when human arrogance will be humbled and eradicated forever. The Bible tells us that one day every knee will bow to King Jesus. And in that day, we can bow before him grudgingly as our judge, or we can bow before him gladly as our substitute and our king. For nearly all of us, In a variety of ways, this past year has been a humbling year. But when we see the pattern of God's work, how he confronts our arrogant self-reliance, we can recognize that this humbling that we may each be experiencing is profoundly good work in us.
however painful it can be. And as a result of it, may we this season and always be able to sing along with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank and praise you for the reality of what you accomplished in the incarnation of your Son. You save us from your sins, but you also eradicate the very uh, root of our sin and sickness and death. You have uh, conquered our arrogance. And we thank you for the gift of the Spirit who is teaching your people humility. And we pray that you'd give us grace this season in particular to share our humble hope of your great grace to arrogant people like ourselves. We pray it in the name of the glorious Jesus. Amen.